Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, probably one of the most famous uh, quotes in the English language uh, was, was coined or cited by a man, man named John L. Swigert, Swigert Jr. He was the command module pilot of the Apollo 13 space expedition back in 1970. It was one of the most famous lines, so famous that probably most of you already know what that quote was, right? Houston, we have a problem. Probably one of the, the, the biggest understatements of recorded history. Uh, what could have been a, a national space tragedy turned out to be a national triumph for us. Now, for those of you who might have seen the movie, it was a great movie. It recorded just this amazing and, and, and edge-of-your-seat kind of adventure of, of what would happen with these men. Now, I don't remember the movie getting into it, but the, the, the question was, how did this situation come about? Well, the NASA report says this, that the explanation was that there was a rupture in the number two oxygen tank, which caused the explosion that blew off the number four module bay cover. Now, um, I'm not an astronaut or anything, but I know having an exploding oxygen tank in space is never a good idea, but that wasn't even the real cause of this potential tragedy. It was actually something much, much smaller about two inches to be precise. The report goes on. The number two oxygen tank used in Apollo 13 had originally been installed in Apollo 10. It was removed from Apollo 10 for modification and during the extraction, the team dropped the tank just two inches, slightly jarring an internal fill line. The tank was, repra was replaced for Apollo 10 and this tank was later installed in Apollo 13. Don't you wish you would have been on Apollo 10 and not 13, right? But two inches, something so inconsequential and obviously even inconsequential to the technicians who were responsible for the safety of the crew, but rec not recognizing that those two inches could have mean the difference between life and death. Now, two inches generally is not that big a deal. If I'm walking 100 feet, if I veer off two inches, it's not a problem. But if my compass is off by two inches and I'm flying from Los Angeles to my home state of Hawaii, those two inches is the difference between landing safely on the tarmac and surfing that plane into the Pacific Ocean. Depending upon the, the gravity of what you're doing, the precision necessary becomes all the more important. My point is, little changes can have a big impact. And nothing, nothing was more important in Paul's mind than the critical precision necessary to communicate the life-changing, transforming power of the gospel. And that's why he wrote this letter to the Galatians, because he recognized that they were veering off ever so slightly, just two inches, just two degrees, but that would change the gospel entirely. And so when he realized these false teachers were gaining an influence, you can better believe he prayed, Lord, we have a problem. And he jumped in to write what would later become the book of Galatians. Let me pray that God blesses the teaching of His Word, and let's just jump into it. If you don't have it open already, turn open to Galatians chapter 1. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this amazing book, the Magna Carta of the Christian Spiritual Freedom, the Declaration of Independence Spiritually, as it's been called. Lord, Galatians speaks a clear, loud message that the gospel meant salvation, being right with God, is a free gift and not something that we can earn. Lord, it is the human tendency to try to earn things for ourselves. That's the way we relate to one another, and so we assume that's the way we relate to You, but that is not the case. 
Father, we thank you for the message of grace found in Galatians. Open our ears that we might hear from it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the nine verses that we are going to study this morning, they really are the seed of really the entire book of Galatians. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul is battling to lay out his credentials. In verses 3 and 5, he talks about the content of the gospel. And then verses 6 through 8, he talks about the crisis in the Galatian churches. So that's the trajectory we're going to be on today. Those are the three points we're going to cover. We're going to start with the credentials of Paul. If you look at verses 1 and 2 as as Alan read them, this is the first time, if you read any of Paul's letters, whether it might be the introduction to Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, or Philippians, Paul merely states that he's an apostle and then moves on to the point at hand. Not so in Galatians. In Galatians, Paul actually has to to explain what that means as Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He goes into an elaborate explanation of his apostleship. Reason being is one way to deny the message is to undermine the authority of the messenger, right? If you can discredit someone, it goes a long way in, in discrediting what they say. And we don't need to look at the Bible for that. Just turn on current political TV debates, right? It's never about issues. It's always about character. And so Paul's character, his, his, very, his credentials are being attacked, which is why he launches into explaining that his apostleship is not from men, it's actually from God. And here's how the logic works. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, Jesus said to his apostles, that he who receives you receives me and the one who has sent me. So Paul was, in fact, one of these apostles, even though he wasn't part of the original 12 that Jesus spoke to. We know verifiably that he was a capital A apostle. If you're a note taker, write down Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Uh, Or look at the beginning of almost any New Testament book. It talks about Paul being this apostle. Now, if it's true that an apostle is a personal agent and representative of Jesus Christ, then to reject an apostle is to reject Jesus. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. That's the logic being built here. And so Paul is saying, I am one of those apostles. I'm a capital A apostle. If you reject me, you are in a sense rejecting God Himself. Paul's apostleship was not from man, but from God, just as the gospel itself did not come from man, but was from God, delivered from God Himself. Peter, another apostle, says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. We didn't make this up. We didn't come up with this material. No, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the gospel being revealed to us has its source in and from God Himself. And the agents who were the messengers that God had used to deliver His message were themselves chosen by God. This is why today there are no apostles, capital A. I know you can hear, sometimes you might hear that. If you watch certain television shows like TBN, you'll hear people claim an apostleship that doesn't exist anymore. In this sense, those apostles are done. Ephesians 2, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 20 tells us that they were the foundation of the church. There are no direct representatives of God speaking with His revelatory authority alive today. That's why we have His Word. But in Paul's day, saying, I am one of these apostles. 
Paul's words here had almost a conquering ring to the original recipients. I am this apostle. You must listen to me. You must heed what I'm saying or you reject God Himself. You cease being a church yourselves. And see, what Paul is attempting to make clear right out of the gate is that these false teachers don't necessarily have a problem with Paul as much as they have a problem with God Himself because Paul is an agent chosen by God to relay His message. Look down in verse 12 of the same chapter. For I did not receive it from any man, speaking about the gospel, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul goes to great ends to lay out his credentials here, just as he does in the book of 2 Corinthians. There were always men attacking his apostleship. In 2 Corinthians, they were called the super apostles. And Paul says, no, I am a legitimate apostle of God, and he defends his credentials. The reason that's so important is because he delivered the content of the gospel. And we see that in in verses 3 to 5 in a very comprehensive yet brief uh, explanation, Paul outlines the gospel. So, this divinely appointed messenger brings a divinely appointed message, which is the gospel. And, and, and I just want to read that because it, it's amazing how we can read over so many profound verses of the Bible that are teaching amazing truth, but because we know our own language so well, we just skim right over it. But in these few verses, verses 3 to 5, we have this amazing picture of the gospel. There's four parts to it. Number one, it starts with who we are. We see that in verse 4. Humanity, Paul writes, is helpless and lost. Now, now look in the verse. You see that word deliver there? That, that He gave Himself for our sins to deliver us. The word deliver implies rescue. Now, in our day and age, the word deliver implies Amazon or, you know, uh, what, or a grocery store. We don't think of deliverer as an idea of rescue, but in this day and age, that's exactly what it was. And other parts of the New Testament translate the same word as rescue. Paul is saying Jesus' work is a work of rescue. You see, other founders of religions, they came to teach, not to rescue. I think it's safe to say that the average person on the street, the average person on the street thinks that a Christian is a man or woman who is trying to follow the the example and teachings of Christ. I think that's safe to say that the average person thinks a Christian is a man or woman who's trying to follow the example or teachings of Christ. Get this, Paul's whole point in the book of Galatians is that is exactly what we cannot do. Paul's whole point is that you cannot follow the teachings and example of Christ because if you did, He would not have needed to come in the first place. So right out of the gate, the average person on the streets understanding of what a Christian is is not even consistent with what the New Testament says a Christian is. It's not that we think we can follow the examples of teachings in Christ. We recognize we can't do that. And that, that itself is the great problem of humanity. It's not as if we don't know what we're supposed to do. Our problem isn't a lack of information. The problem is we're not able, we're incapable of doing the very things that the Scripture calls us to. Right? It's not that I don't know what it means to love my wife sacrificially. I know what that's supposed to be. 
The problem is I'm so often incapable to fulfill the very thing. You see, Paul uses this interesting word of, of rescue, of deliverance, and you don't rescue or deliver someone unless they're in a perilous situation, unless they're in imminent danger. Now imagine with, you, with me for a moment, you're down at Laguna Beach or down at one of the piers, and, and you see somebody who's drowning. And they're flailing their arms, water spitting out of their mouth. What do you do? Do you run over to them and throw them a pamphlet on how to do the breaststroke? No. You run over to them and, and instruct them the importance of aquatic safety? You don't do that. You don't go throw them some teaching. What do you do? You throw them a rope, right? You throw them a rope because they are in need of rescue. They don't need information. They need someone to deliver them. That's what Jesus did. Jesus is not so much a teacher, although he does do that. Jesus is a rescuer. The gospel is not just information for us to absorb and assent to, although it is that. The gospel is a rescue plan. The, the gospel is a rescue plan. It, it is as if someone walking into a fiery building and says, friends, there's salvation for us. There's a firefighter waiting at the other end of the hallway. Just run down the hallway and he'll take care of you. You wouldn't say, oh, that's, that's good. Let me, let me think about that. That's good. Well, or I'm glad that's true for you, but I'm not sure if that's true for me. You would recognize your predicament and say, I'm out of here, right? But, but here's this. That's not even the gospel. The gospel is you're in a burning building, and the fireman crashes through the window, comes looking for you, and picks you up and takes you out. So it's not even us running down the hall. It's a rescue plan. It gets even better. It's not that he kicks through the window, comes looking through the rubble, grabs you, and throw, comes over to the window, you recognize there's only room for one in that basket. And so he drops you and jumps in. No, that's not what he does. He puts you in the basket. That's the gospel. It's not just teaching. It's not just information. It is a rescue. found this poem that was so wonderful. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a technician. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was deliverance, so God sent us a rescuer. Sin has put humanity, all of us, in danger. And Jesus comes to rescue us from that danger. We are lost. We're helpless. That's point one. Point two. All of us, we're still in verse four. What Jesus did, how did he rescue us? Notice it says there, he gave himself for our sins. In other words, there was an exchange. There was an exchange happening. See, Christianity is not an excuse. It's an exchange. It is His life for our life. There was Him being a substitution for us. It should have been me. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Somebody has to pay for the crime. A wrong has been done. There needs to be somebody punished. Jesus says, I will take that punishment. He rescues us by being our substitution. Salvation doesn't make, uh, Jesus' death doesn't make salvation available in a vague kind of general way. Jesus' death guarantees salvation for everyone who says, I need you to be my substitution. So Jesus was our substitution. Number three, 
what God the Father did. Now, for this, we're going to go back to verse 1. God accepted the work of Christ, and the resurrection is the evidence of that. So, look at verse 1. Paul says he's an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. God raising his son from the dead is the evidence that his son's sacrifice was sufficient. He, death could not hold him because he did nothing worthy of death. So the Father raised him. Number four, why God did it? This was done out of sheer grace. Not because of anything we have done. It was according to His will. It's the last line in verse four. According to the will of our God and Father. So let's step back a little bit. Look at verse four. This is salvation. The gospel is totally a work of God. God's grace on our behalf. Here are the parts. He gave Himself for us a substitutionary act to deliver us a rescuing act from this evil age, an urgent act, according to the will of God, a premeditated act. The gospel of our salvation, that what Jesus has done, is a substitutionary, rescuing, urgent, premeditated act, and all this had nothing to do with any one of us. This is the gospel. It isn't that we earned it, it isn't that we performed for it, all because of His grace, and as a result, all the glory goes to God. That's what Paul writes in verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. See, my friends, this, this humbling fact lies at the heart of the Christian faith. This very fact lies at the heart of the Christian faith, but the problem is We tend to love to be our own saviors, don't we? We tend to love to be our own saviors. We want that glory for ourselves. We want to be our own saviors. Here's how I can prove it to you. None of you here are ever the loser in your daydream, right? None of you have a daydream, and in the daydream, you're the loser, Every daydream we have reveals our desire for that glory or our idolatries, don't they? In our daydreams, we win the day, we score the winning point, we make the deal, we close the deal, we we, we get the girl, we win the lottery. It's always us coming out on top because we like that glory. It's always us benefiting somehow, and then maybe we do something magnanimous for other people. Why? because we like to be the Savior, because there's glory that comes with that. Now, it can be religious, right? So, you, you do good, and you get eternal blessings, or it can be secular. Very competent, and you get temporal blessings. You see, the gospel turns all of that kind of works mentality upside down. You see, the message of the cross The message of the cross, the symbol that we see every day that some of us have in our homes, some of us wears furniture, or excuse me, not furniture, that would be something, some of us wears jewelry, you know what the message of the cross is? Rick, you're such a lunkhead, there's just no way you're going to pull any of this off. The message of the cross is, you just can't do this. And so, guess what? I'm going to come down and I'm going to make sure I take care of it for you. See, the message of the cross is not, okay, he was an example, and if I try hard enough, maybe I can make it. It is, there's just no way you can pull this off in your wildest dreams, son. I'm going to take care of 
all of it for you. The the gospel turns all this on its head. The gospel reminds us that we have been both brought lower and raised higher than we've ever imagined. And that's why all the glory, rightly so, goes to God for all eternity. Verse 5. But see, the Galatians had reversed this gospel. This gospel message was turned around, and it was a result. It was no longer the gospel. This explains Paul's passionate, assertive tone to them, that, because this brought a crisis. And that's what we look at now, verses 6 through 9, the crisis that was in Galatia. Look at verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly, within a year of them hearing the gospel, deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice that, verse 6, God calls, then we follow. That's, that's always the order of the gospel, the order of salvation. God accepts us in Christ regardless of our merit, and we respond. God calls us to Himself, we respond to Him. It's not we cleaned ourselves up, we got our act together, now we're worthy, now we can come to the Lord. My friends, how foolish would you think I was if I told you, hey, I'm going to go join, get a membership at LA Fitness down here. But, but before I do that, I got to buff up a little bit. I got to get in shape, get my cardio good. And then when I'm toned and tight and fit, that's what I'm going to join. Well, you, you would, what are you, come on, that's why you go to a gym is to do that very thing. Right, but isn't that exactly what we do when it comes to the things of God? I got I to gotta stop this behavior, and then I got to start this behavior, and then maybe then I'm okay to, to, to be a Christian or know the Lord. Why is it that we so intuitively understand something, a physical illustration of this, but we completely go lights out on the spiritual illustration of it, right? Because it's so a part of who we are. Many years ago, um, a friend, I'll call his name Roger, called me up, and he was just despondent. He was on the phone, just weeping, and for the umpteenth time that year had failed and gotten himself involved in pornographic sin again, and just felt, basically says, why would God, why, God must be sick and tired of hearing my sorry cries for forgiveness, and I'm just going to stop trying to stop because I can't do it. Now, let me just say quickly, Roger, his impulse was all right, right? It it was all right. He he wanted to live a pure life before God. He understood that that, that for someone who calls themselves a Christian, the values that they hold ought to match the values of their Christ. He got that. But here's the thing. His impulse was all right, but his identity was all wrong because he thought it it relied on him to do it. The impulse was right, but the identity was wrong. I said, Roger, if you could do it, then Jesus died for nothing. Jesus came and did what he did exactly because you cannot do it. You need to stop grounding your identity in your performance and start grounding your identity in his performance. And that's so true for all of us. We ground our identity in Christ in the way we perform. And so we feel like we're closer to God, all in relation to that particular besetting sin. When's the last time we committed it or how long it's been since we've committed it? And it either crushes us or makes us self-righteous. 
but we need to stop grounding our standing before God in our performance because it will either destroy us or puff us up and destroy us there. You see, here's, but here's the, here's the reason why we feel that instinct so much. I was talking to Jeff. Jeff, are you here? Jeff, last week, we were talking about this impulse in, in, back in there before we came out of that we need to work for it. Because here's, here's the reality. We are saved by works, right? Now, Jeff, you guys are doing what Jeff did, that kind of, oh, I don't know about what, what, what just came out of your mouth. We are saved by works, friend. We are. The thing is, it's not any of our works that saves us. We are saved by the 100% satisfaction of every law of God because Jesus lived up to it. Every demand God had, every work of righteousness that God expects of humanity that none of us can do, Jesus fulfilled to the gnat's eyebrow. And then when he died on the cross, the Father said, I accept your sacrifice. You were the only man ever to be perfect, yet you gave it up for them. My law is satisfied. And if you will give their, your righteousness to them and they'll give you their sinfulness, I'll take that exchange because the law's been satisfied. That's why we feel that impulse. The problem is we put the identity in the wrong place. We think it's, it's us that has to perform it. No, no, it's Christ. See, theologians call that his, his active obedience, that he did everything perfectly. And then his death is called the passive obedience because it happened to him. Right? Just this morning I was reading Matthew 1 and 2, and Jesus is not even five years old, and four times it says, and all this was done to fulfill the Scriptures. Jesus' whole life was about fulfilling the demand of God so that when he would die, it was perfect. Friends, holiness is not um, the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. We get that mixed up all the time. We think it's us, our good works, whatever it is that gets us to Christ, and the gospel says no, 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 a thousand times no. It is Christ that will get you to holiness. Adding to this gospel of grace, however small, is a distortion. And Paul says in verse 7, as a matter of fact, it's no gospel at all. It says, end of verse 6, I'm so surprised that you're leaving this, the one who called you, the grace of Christ, turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen to what Martin Luther said in his commentary on this very book. He said, there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness, and what he means by that is not, not I'm a Christian, we're supposed to be righteous. It's, it's the righteousness of Christ. There is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. Martin Luther was saying, look, there's no in-betweens here. It's either Jesus' perfected righteousness or you're going to have to bear that whole burden. Take your pick. Right? That's what Martin Luther was saying. Yeah, yeah, you can come to God if you can fulfill the law in its entirety, but even to think you can, you've just broken it. So take your pick. Is it going to be on the righteousness of Christ or your own works righteousness? My friends, any revision of the gospel is a reversal of the gospel. Any revision of the gospel is a reversal of the gospel. 
So the natural question is, if the gospel is so crucial, if it is so central, how do we know we have the true gospel? That's a good question. How do we know that we have the, the, the objective real gospel that really eternally can save and not one we just think is true, not one that we feel is true? How do we know this is the real deal? That's an important question because there's a lot of false gospels out there. There are a lot of false gospels floating around. You got the health and wealth gospel, you got the do good and be nice gospel, you got the social justice gospel, you got the therapeutic gospel, and so many more. And, and each of them, they have a sliver of truth in them, just enough to make people be seduced that that's that actually the gospel. So, so let me illustrate that. Doesn't God want us to be blessed? Doesn't God want us to be a blessed people? Absolutely. The problem is our definition of blessing is all temporal and material, and we're not taking into account God's eternal plan, right? So well, what about, doesn't God want us to do good works? Aren't we supposed to be good people? Absolutely. But in response to the grace we find and the beauty of His character, we do these things not as a way to earn merit and our salvation, Doesn't, doesn't God care about social justice? What about the oppressed? What about those who are who, the, the minority? How about those who get forgotten? Absolutely God does. Absolutely God cares about injustice and oppression, but, but not the neglect of the biggest injustice and the biggest oppression of sin that destroys all of creation. Doesn't God care about my healing? Doesn't God care about that I become whole again? Absolutely. But He's concerned that we understand what the real disease actually is first. You see, all these various gospels have a sliver of truth that kind of do this and they hook us into it, right? This is what Irenaeus, a church father, said like 1,800 years ago. Error, indeed, is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed, it should at once be detected. But it's craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so by, as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. We have to be careful of these things. So the question is, how do we know that we have the right gospel? Paul makes the most strongest argument in verse 8. He provides the plumb line. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So, so here's the judgment. Here, here's how you determine. Here's your plumb line. Whether it be through um, external truth claims from teachers, writers, thinkers, or preachers, or internal truth claims, your own feelings and sensations or experiences, Paul says it's the message of the gospel as handed down in the apostolic tradition. In other words, what we have recorded in Scripture, this is the message of the gospel. And Paul's saying none of us, including an angel of God, can change it, alter it, or redact it, or edit it in any way, shape, or form. Paul says even his own apostolic authority is rooted in the gospel and not the other way around. And then to all the Christians in the Galatian churches, he says, to you, it, it comes to you. And notice, he's not simply talking to church leaders here. He's not just talking to the elders or pastors like in Acts chapter 20. He's talking to all the Christians who are hearing this letter. He says, the whole church is responsible for the gospel. The whole church is responsible for its protection, for its proclamation, for its personification, living it out. Every Christian. 
That's what we see in chapter 1, because he says, I'm astonished that you, plural, all of you hearing this letter, would so quickly depart from the gospel, which is not a real gospel. Now, let's bring this theology into some practice here. Paul is making two implicit points, isn't he? Number one, we all need to know the gospel, right? For, for what, we all just need to know the gospel for our own soul's sake, not to mention that if you have a family to lead them well, uh, if you've got coworkers or friends or know anybody to be able to bring them to Christ, you've got to know the gospel. Secondly, we have to know uh, who the we is who are responsible for it and to it. Now, now, if you're part of Christ Community Church, don't you want to know who that is? Who, don't you want to know who the people who are responsible, who you're responsible to and for? Now, you might think, well, that's obvious. It's, it's all of us here. It's everyone who just attends this church. Not so fast. Not so fast. Can you be responsible? Can you be responsible for that, that family or that individual that maybe shows up every three weeks or so or whenever it's convenient to them? Can, can you be responsible for the way they're protecting the gospel, proclaiming it, the way they're living it out? I mean, can you be responsible for that? Yeah, probably not. I mean, there's inconsistency. You don't even hardly know them now. See, here's what I'm getting at. We can't be responsible uh, for all the Christians in Orange County, right? That's just obvious. We can't even be responsible for the Christians in South Orange County. We can't be responsible for the Christians in Laguna Hills. Honestly, we can't even be responsible for every Christian who walks through these doors because there's too many people coming and going all the time. But we can, and we must be responsible to and for those men and women, both young and old, who literally put their name on the line and say, I'm in. I'm going to be with you all because we're going to be a covenant community of believers that we're going to protect the gospel together, we're going to proclaim it together, we're going to live it out together. And I'm putting my name on the line so that you hold me accountable, I hold you accountable. You fight for my holiness, I fight for your holiness. You combat sin, I combat sin. We do this together, not as lone rangers, not whenever I want it, but all the time. My friends, this is where the importance of a thing like church membership becomes even more important in our lives. Because it helps us to identify those who we are practically responsible to and for in a matter of number of things that are important, especially the gospel message. Our Christianity is not just up to me and Jesus, and if it happens to be at Starbucks, that's fine, but if it's going to be at the beach this Sunday, that's fine. That's not how this goes. We, we assume the church. We do, don't we? We assume the church, but the church is the only thing the Bible says God shed His blood for. That's a scary thing to just assume when the Bible says He shed His blood to obtain the church. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about institutional forms. I'm talking about the most precious thing the church is. It's the people. But that means then there's a responsibility that flows in both directions it's not about how I want Christianity to be. It's not about how you Christianity want it, want it to be. It's about what the standard of what Christianity is in the gospel as well as the implications thereof, right? 
So, so back to the passage. So, so Paul says the gospel that's been handed down from the apostles is the message of God, and, and, and nobody, even an angel, if they bring to you anything different, let them be condemned. This is the standard of God's revelation to humanity. That's why we spend so much time thinking about it, studying it, reading it, memorizing it. It's because this is God's revelation of Himself to humanity and all that He expects and promises to us. And it is special, and we cling to it. And Paul was astonished that the Galatians would abandon it so quickly. I remember, um, let me just kind of close with this illustration. In my mid-20s, I was driving through the city of state of Utah, and I had an opportunity to go to Salt Lake City. And, and I, I so wanted to see the tour of the Mormon temple. And in my younger years, I was a little bit excited when I talk about the gospel, and I've been kicked out of public places for causing public unrest, and so I thought, all right, I'm going to take the tour, and I pro- I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to listen. I'm going to be a guest. So that's what I was. I was there in kind of ripped up jeans and, you know, straggly hair. I had my messenger bag, and I thought, I'm just going to enjoy this tour. And if any of you have been in the tour at the main temple, it ends in this auditorium about a quarter of the size, maybe half the size of this room, this huge intimidating statue of Moroni, the angel, according to Joseph Smith, that brought him the new tablets, right? And uh, the whole tour, I'd just been listening, being a nice guest. And the lady, the young lady, probably 23, a few years younger than I was, said, does anybody have any questions before we conclude? So I'm not going to ask anything. Nobody raised their hand. Anybody questions about anything? Anybody want to know anything about our founder or how Mormonism began? I thought, ah, oh, she's baiting me and nobody's off. So I just raised my hand. I said, I have a question. He said, yes, well, what's your question? I said, how do you reconcile Paul's words to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9? And at that point, she, she looked at me. She goes, I don't know. I've never read it. And she said, would you, would you, would you want to read it? I said, sure. So I opened up my Bible and I read you know, that, that another angel coming, another gospel, and right there, the real good, the good Mormons all kind of went to one side. All, all the Christians who was hoping somebody would say something went to the other side, and all the innocent people didn't want to be collateral damage. They went to the other side. So she and I started going back and forth, and, and as it was clear that she had never read this, and I had read this passage that there was a tension in the air. And at that moment, um, uh, they were bouncers. They were bouncers. What they, these Mormon bouncers came in. They were. And we started going back and forth. And these, she didn't know anything. She had come to her understanding based on the Mormon books themselves, but not the Scripture. And so one of the elders came and started to, to talk about in the Greek that when Paul says there's another gospel, that he was using heteros, not alos. And, and well, so I happen to have this very Greek New Testament with me. And all my Bibles are held together with duct tape. So I said, well, great. So I pulled it out of my messenger bag. Now here's this long-haired, ripped-up jeans, scraggly guy in his mid-20s, busts out a, new, a Greek New Testament. And I said, look, right here, he doesn't use heteros, it's alos. None of, that, none of that means anything to you. But the point was, they got upset. My tour guide started crying. I felt so bad because there was a sense that she was now being confronted in a genuine way. I mean, in the literal original language, she started weeping. And that's when the bouncers got really unmormon like. They slammed my Greek New Testament and took me out the back door and threw me on the sidewalk. I mean, that, that actually happened. Mormons are actually can be mean people too. I mean, I got Mormon friends. They're really nice, but not when you do that on them. The point is, some of my words to them was, how can you 
look to a Savior that doesn't prompt give you salvation? Why would you depart from a Savior that guarantees you salvation to a salvation that is none? And they had nothing to give back. And so I drove home very depressed because here were good, good, genuine people deceived by another doctrine, another gospel. And I went to a Christian bookstore. Obviously, by the time I got back to California, I couldn't find one in Utah. But, and I found a card that, that said this, and I wrote it. I bought the card because it was so true. And I, close, I, conclu- I conclude with this. It's a poem. It says, In Christ we have a love that can never be fathomed, a life that can never die, a righteousness that can never be tarnished, a peace that can never be understood, a rest that can never be disturbed, a joy that can never be diminished, a hope that can never be disappointed, a glory that can never be clouded, a light that can never be darkened, a purity that can never be defiled, a beauty that can never be marred, a wisdom that can never be baffled, and a salvation that can never be undone. Why would the Galatians or any one of us Look for our salvation in any Savior that is none other than Christ. And I can't think of a a more perfect way to end our time today than to publicly, together as a body, proclaim that Christ is our salvation by partaking of the, the communion together. The bread representing the life, the active obedience that He lived, but His life, His body that was broken, the cup representing the, the, the passive obedience of His death, the blood that was shed for us so that we don't have to strive and struggle and try and work our way up a moral achievement ladder, but that we can remember that He came down because exactly we couldn't go up. And so as I pray, if those who are going to serve us communion would come on down, and as always, if, if you are, have a gluten issue, come into this line and they'll have a gluten alternative for you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so grateful that even though in our kind of works achievement mentality, we are constantly reminded that the core of our faith is not something we can earn. It is not something we can merit. It is a gift, completely, solely a gift, a substitutionary, rescuing, urgent, premeditated act in the mind of the Trinity for the sake of humanity. Father, I just pray, we pray as a congregation, we would learn to bask in the beauty of knowing that in Christ and in Christ alone, we are made right with you and that you love us and that you continue to work within us because of Christ. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.